Hey everybody, welcome to the 5 Buy, your five-stop shop for quick-fire board game reviews. On this episode, Mason rolls through the French countryside in Castles of Burgundy the Dice Game, I unearth ancient Mayan temples in the Guatemalan jungle in Tikal, Ruel struggles to save the frozen inhabitants of a doomed colony ship in Cryo, and John plays that silver ball from Soho down to Brighton in Super Skill Pinball. But first, Christy scrambles to disarm a live bomb and fuse. Greetings, listeners. This week, I want to look back at a real-time dice game from 2015 called Fuse. As you may know, real-time games are not for everyone. They can be stressful and frantic, and this doesn't always lead to an enjoyable experience for those of us who want to relax as we game. I'm not here to tell you that Fuse is the one-in-a-million real-time exception that such gamers are going to love, but it does have some puzzly cooperative elements that might make it more palatable for some folks. Fuse is designed by Kane Klanko and published by Renegade. The artists are Hokunin, Chris Ostrowski, and Sean Thurlow. Fuse is a game about diffusing bombs that is played with a 10-minute timer. You can download a free timer app from Renegade or use any other timer. The bombs are represented by cards in a 54-card deck, along with 11 fuse cards that we'll talk about later. Each bomb card can be resolved by placing dice on top of it in a particular arrangement that is specified by the card. The game comes with 25 six-sided dice in five different colors. Your bomb card specifies a combination of dice relating to the number and or color of the dice you place. For example, your card might require you to stack up four dice, each with a higher number than the previous one you placed. Or it might tell you to place dice in a row matching the colors indicated on the card. Many of the cards in Fuse reference both color and number in some way, making you watch for any die that will work toward fulfilling the requirements of your card. In multiplayer games of Fuse, bomb cards are placed in front of individual players so you are responsible for the bombs in front of you. Okay, so how do you obtain dice to put on your cards? The game takes place over a series of turns in which a player reaches into a dice bag and pulls out a number of dice equal to the number of players. The numbers are different for the two-player and solo modes, but from here on out, I'll assume three of five players. So once the dice have been rolled, everyone has to look at what's available and either state what you can or can't take, or just grab a die that you want. The teamwork and puzzle aspect of who should take which die is at the heart of the game, but if you spend too much time plotting, the buzzer will go off before you've defused all the bombs. From time to time, a player will be forced to take a die that they can't use because their cards won't accommodate it. When this happens, any accessible dice up to one die per player that match the number or color of the die that was thrown out must be removed from the bombs and put back in the bag. So it's a setback that you want to avoid as much as possible, hopefully through efficient cooperation. Some bombs are harder to defuse than others. Each bomb is given a difficulty rating of 1 through 4. You can take this into account as you decide which bomb to work on next because as soon as you defuse a bomb, you set it aside and replace it with a new one. The goal of the game is to defuse all of the bombs, in other words, to get through your deck of cards. There are several difficulty levels to choose from, and these levels work by adjusting the size of the deck, so you probably aren't doing all 54 bombs every game. I found the difficulty levels to be really handy in playing with groups of different experience levels and attention capacities. The fuse cards picture one big die with either a color or a number displayed. When a fuse card is drawn, each player has to remove a corresponding die from one of their bombs, if possible. 
At the beginning of the game, a handful of fused cards are shuffled into the deck, so you'll encounter them occasionally as you play. They're not a huge part of the game, so you could experiment with leaving them out or replacing them with more bomb cards. Here are some of the things I like about Fuse. It's nice to have a 10 minute game so you know that that stressful real-time experience is going to be limited. It doesn't take up a huge amount of table space or shelf space. I like the communication challenge that Fuse presents. On the one hand, you can't spend too much time talking, but on the other hand, if people just grab any die they want, then some of the more difficult bombs are going to be really hard to defuse because there aren't very many dice that will satisfy the requirements. In general, whoever needs the rarest dice is the one who should take priority in terms of die selection. The trick, though, is that the question of who needs the rarest dice is tough to answer because it's changing throughout the game and you don't have time to look at everybody else's bombs. Finally, I feel like Fuse is fairly easy to learn as long as you go through enough bomb examples before you start. Otherwise, you may have to pause the timer for people to ask how their cards work. That's it for Fuse. You can find me on Instagram at d6cmarie. Enjoy gaming safely and please encourage your family and friends to get vaccinated. Thanks for listening. Tensions mount aboard your ship in the faraway reaches of space. An unknown saboteur has sent the vessel crashing down into the surface of an uncharted frozen planet. Can you get your crew pods to safety under the surface before it's too late? Hi, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Cryo by Tom Jolly and Luke Laurie, with art by Bree Linso, Jasmine Radu, and Samuel R. Shimoda. Cryo was published in 2021 by Z-Man Games, who sent me a copy and sponsored a live playthrough on my Twitch channel. In Cryo, two to four players attempt to rescue their crews from the fallen ship and transport them to underground caverns, where they'll be protected from the icy deaths that await them on the surface of the planet. In this worker placement game, Players take turns deploying one of their three drones on the downship's different sections engineering, laboratory, research and development, and dispatch. They'll use these actions to gather materials and energy in an attempt to rescue their crew pods and launch them into the safety of the underground caverns. Players will also recall their drones from the ship wreckage at any time. During the recall action, they'll recover salvage, resolve sabotage or looting incidents, and return drones to their platforms. Each incident marks the passage of time. When the sun finally sets, the game is over and players tally their points based on their rescued crew pods, upgrades and vehicles on their platforms, and completed missions. The most victory points wins. Designer Luke Laurie has previously released two well-regarded games in Dwellings of Everdale and Whistle Mountain to go along with his 2016 game, The Manhattan Project, Energy Empire. Teaming up with veteran designer Tom Jolly of Wizwar fame, the duo has crafted another winner in Cryo. What I love about Cryo is that it feels rock solid from the opening turn until that dreadful moment when the sun is setting and you realize you can't rescue your final crew pod. There are no wasted turns in Cryo. Like other classic Euro games, you're trying to be as efficient as possible and there are several paths that you can take. Resources and actions are tight in this game. Cryo plays crisply and quickly, but offers plenty of opportunities to combo or chain actions so that you can work more efficiently in future turns. It's not a complete brain burner, but it certainly offers tough decisions throughout a game, especially as you begin to lose crew pods due to incidents of sabotage. Do you go card heavy trying to upgrade or add vehicles every turn? Do you build a solid engine of salvaged goods that you receive every round? 
What missions do you select for endgame scoring? When do you begin scouting the caverns below for safety? And how deep do you travel into those caverns to score area majority points? My absolute favorite feature of Cryo is the way it takes the standard return your workers from the board and wait for your next turn step and transforms it into another decision to wait carefully. It never feels like a wasted turn like other worker placement games. Here, an engine building element is added to the player board. When you're on the main board, you may acquire resources immediately or add them to your player board so that you acquire those resources each time you return your drones to them. It's a bit of delayed gratification that you hope will pay off later in the game, but there are moments when you'll need to get those resources ASAP in order to pull off a move. Likewise, the multi-use cards in Cryo offer a nice decision every turn. Each card can be used to upgrade your platform, add a vehicle to your platform, perform a mission, or be scrapped for its resources. Quite often you're trying to decide when to scrap a card in order to use its resources, which are limited, along with trying to figure out how to accumulate enough energy to power your vehicles to the underground area. Traveling underground isn't easy. The cruelties and difficulty of deep space search and rescue operations are apparent in each game of Cryo. You're trying to quickly convert materials and resources into the vehicles and energy you need to rescue your crew. But then after you launch your crew to safety, your vehicle card is discarded and it's time to rebuild again. And the crew that you've delivered there? Players earn points depending on who has the majority in each cavern. But don't get too attached to the crew that remains on the surface. Some of them won't make it, thanks to the sabotage incidents that are a regular part of the game. It's the one bit of take that in cryo, but it never feels out of place since the entire premise of the game is based on this sabotage, so you're never surprised by it. Cryo was an insta-hit for me. It's a medium-weight game that combines worker placement, engine building, and area majority scoring in a sleek sci-fi package. The game never tries to be too clever for its own good. Instead, it focuses on lean and intuitive gameplay, and at 45 to 90 minutes per game, it never outstays its welcome. Thanks to Z-Man Games for the copy of Cryo. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. A couple years after playing and loving Mexica, I saw pictures on BGG of the Super Meeple version of Tikal. My first thought was, this looks a lot like my copy of Mexica. That fact instantly endeared me to Tikal, since I love not only the art style and production, but the gameplay of Mexica so much. And it wasn't until after I dug into getting myself a copy that I found the whole history of the trilogy and that it even was a trilogy. Back in 1999, board game design's super team Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling released two similar tactical abstract games, Torres and Tikal, which would end up winning them two consecutive Spiel des Jahres Game of the Year awards. Both featured an action point allocation system for placing tiles and moving pawns on a slowly populating board, but Tikal's exploration and excavation theme would be the basis for three games, Tikal, Java, and Mexica. Players in Tikal are explorers delving into the jungles of northern Guatemala to discover and excavate the Mayan temples occupying the game's namesake. In reality, the game is a mostly abstract area control game with tile-laying elements, a phrase that could easily describe all three games in the trilogy. The game board starts as an empty expanse of jungle with a base camp in the bottom left corner. At the beginning of your turn, you'll draw a terrain hex and place it on the board, representing the slow clearing and excavation of the jungle. Terrain hexes will have temples, clearings, and ruins, all of which players will jockey for control of both for points and to facilitate board movement. 
once you've placed your terrain tile, you'll have 10 action points to spend placing new explorers, moving your explorers around the board, uncovering temples, and collecting treasure tiles. One of my favorite mechanisms are the path markers, placed around some of the edges of each tile and signifying where explorers can move from hex to hex. The combination of markers on either side of a hex border determine the cost to move across that border. So, if there's one marker on one hex and three on its neighbor, it costs a whopping four points to move between them. I most recently saw this mechanism used again in the criminally underrated Phoenix Syndicate. Creating paths around the board is the primary strategic thrust of the tile placement phase of your turn, where you're trying to figure out how to simultaneously make it cheap to get where you want to go, but expensive for everyone else. Two volcano tiles are shuffled into the tile stack, each of which will trigger a scoring round when they're revealed. The vast majority of the game centers around trying to control temple tiles by having the most explorer meeples there before a scoring round is triggered. And scoring rounds are where one of my favorite wrinkles in the game comes in. When you draw a volcano, you place it, and then all normal play stops. The player who drew the volcano gets one full 10 action point turn, where they can move around their explorers or excavate temples, and then they score at the end of that turn. Then, each other player in turn order does the same before normal play resumes. So, it's entirely possible for multiple players to score the same tiles in a scoring round. I could take control of a temple during my scoring turn, then my wife can move a couple explorers in and also score it. This makes scoring for area control feel far less punishing than I've found it to be in other games, and it adds a whole layer of tactical decision-making where you're not only trying to balance which temples you can take over to score, but you're also trying to calculate how many explorers you can spare to block other players from being able to do so during their scoring turns. A lot of newer, bigger, flashier area control games have come and gone in the 22 years since Tikal's original release, and yet Tikal endures. The game's action point system is employed with such a deft hand that it feels completely intuitive after only one or two turns, becoming second nature. Yeah, AP can cause some issues here and there, but it's never the game's systems slowing it down. It moves fast and feels natural, lending weight and excitement to the competition. A lot of games of this ilk tend to be based in colonialist history. While the initial discovery of Mayan ruins definitely has colonial overtones, Tikal presents its exploratory theme as a modern preservatory expedition into a beloved UNESCO heritage site, even though the cover art still shows an Indiana Jones-esque character stumbling into a pyramid in the jungle. Up until recently, the prettier, nicer Super Meeple version of Tikal has been hard to get in English. Rio Grande, the original publisher, has, for some reason, kept a chokehold on reprinting their old, bland version for North America in spite of a newer, better version existing. I own a Dutch copy of the game ordered from publisher Keep Exploring Games, with which they sent me, no joke, a printout of an English fan translation of the French rulebook that was posted to BGG. All that's changing, though, as Super Meeple has announced they'll be releasing their version in North America sometime in 2021. It may be out by the time this review is posted. The original is okay, I guess, but you'll want to grab the new version if you can. It is, in my opinion, a must-buy for anyone who loves area control, and I honestly think it could take down the Spiel des Jahres again if it were released today. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! I'm not quite old enough to remember arcades that were entirely filled with pinball machines, or pins as the aficionados call them. Don't get me wrong, I'm old enough to remember arcades, so yeah, I'm not saying I'm not old. But the sights and sounds of the local arcades still echo in my memory. They were a cacophony of beeps and boops, and lots of cigarette smoke. 
Super Skill Pinball 4K by designer Jeff Engelstein and publisher WizKids tries to capture the fun and excitement of the pinball machine in a roll and write. Minus the cigarette smell, of course. Inside its appropriately sized box, Super Skill Pinball comes with four different pinball machines, each represented by a board, and there are two pins on each board. There are also boards on which you keep track of your score and that represent the pin back glasses. That's a large glass in the physical machine that displays high scores, mini games, and of course the game's art. There are also enough boards and markers for four players to get their pinball on. Each of the four pins in Super Skill Pinball has its own theme and each feels like its own iteration of the same set of rules, which is pretty neat because you can start off by playing Carnival, a circus carnival themed pinball which serves well to introduce some game rules that carry from table to table. The three other tables are themed after Cyberpunk Hackers, Fantasy, and uh, Disco? The last one sounds a bit odd, but the themes come across as four very distinct and very charming pinball machines. So how do you play Super Skill Pinball? You start off by rolling two dice and launching your ball to the top of the board. I use the word launch figuratively since you are actually moving it onto the topmost play area of your board. Oh, and your ball token is a clever chromed out half sphere which earns the game a bunch of cool points in my book. Each board has four or five areas through which your ball moves during play. There are bumpers, targets, spinners, in lanes, out lanes, and all other sorts of pinball machine landmarks to navigate using your dice rolls. Each turn, you roll two dice and use one of the results to move your ball token to the next area and mark off a feature. You're often collecting victory points or setting yourself up to score some serious victory points through bonuses and the multiball. Yeah, there's multiball. If you are unable to use your dice results to move on to the next area, you have to drop your ball token further down. Like in real life pinball, your ball rolls ever closer to sinking down the gutter, ending your current round, and in most cases, ending any bonuses that might be active. There are three rounds in total, one for each ball you'd get in a physical pinball game, but there's plenty of ways to keep your game going. You just have to roll right and make some correct decisions. Super Skill Pinball, clever little pinball simulation that it is, has flippers that let you launch yourself back up to a higher area on your player board. Granted, you've rolled the right numbers or haven't already marked off the numbers on said flippers. Eventually, though, you will run out of spaces to mark off your flippers and your ball will sink. Sink three balls and your game is over. Did I mention there's multi-ball? The game comes with extra ball tokens so that when you trigger multi-ball on the board, you now have two ball tokens in play. You'll get to use both dice to move your ball tokens from play area to play area, but just like multiball in real life, the multiball and super skill pinball doesn't last forever, and by using two ball tokens at a time, you're quickly marking off valuable spaces that are keeping your ball in play. But it's also a great way to ramp up your score and trigger other bonuses. There's also a clever way to change a dice roll which the game calls nudging. To nudge a die, you simply note the difference between the die result you rolled and the roll you wanted. You can now mark a feature on the board with this value. If on your next roll the value of your dice is less than or equal to the nudge value, you tilt, immediately losing your current ball. I love how thematically fitting the nudge mechanism feels. The four boards in Super Skill Pinball 4K are all different enough from each other that each feel like a different pin, but share the same basic rules, softening the learning curve from board to board. 
My only quibble with the game lies in its approach to multiplayer. When playing at 2, 3, or 4 player counts, everyone is working from the same dice rolls but marking their own boards and guiding their ball tokens to different spots on the board. It's possible that a player can end their run before other players or that one or more players keep their ball token in play long after everyone else is done with the game. I've had some games like that where everyone is waiting for the last player to end their game and it's not the most satisfying way to end the game. It's a minor thing and one that won't bother most people. It's just something to keep in mind. As someone who doesn't have a whole lot of disposable income for board games, I appreciate that Super Skill Pinball offers print and play demos of two of the pins on the WizKids website. Before I purchased the game, I downloaded the two boards available on the website and played them a few times. I enjoyed the experience enough that I added the game to my collection. So yeah, Super Skill Pinball is a super thematic and wonderfully executed game that part of the expression is a love letter to pinball machines. And I love it when a game embraces its theme. Super Skill Pinball not only embraces it, it rolls with it, shoots up a ramp, and gets a high score. For the 5 by I'm John Gonzalez. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Castles of Burgundy, the dice game. Back in 2013, Castles of Burgundy was one of the first serious German games we bought after having played Carcassonne over at our friend Mark's house. We played it a lot over the years, and I still think it's one of the better Euro games of the 2010s. I like pencil games quite a bit, as I've discussed before, but I'm generally pretty wary of anything the dice or something the card game. Usually what made a Euro game good doesn't translate well into a scaled-down box version of itself. There are, of course, a few exceptions to this, but by and large, most of them I've played have been pretty big flops. The Medici card game is very good, as is Zularetto Dice, but those might be the exceptions that prove the rule. Very often, a card or dice version of a popular Euro is just an easy way for a publisher to cash in on something that consumers are already familiar with. Now, that's not to say that Burgundy Dice isn't just that. I mean, it probably is just that. I can't imagine that Feld himself decided it needed doing. But even if it is a callous cash grab, it's a pretty good one. Now, I won't assume you've played Castles of Burgundy, as it's not really relevant to learning Burgundy dice. But having played the original certainly helps clarify some of the rules, which are unfortunately printed very small in a shiny little book with a dark background. Now, all of my issues with this game are visual, mostly the poor readability of it, especially the player sheets. The game itself is pretty fun. It's basically a solo puzzle you fill in based on your die rolls. Thematically, this is only vaguely reminiscent of the original game, but that's okay, because the original game is only vaguely themed anyway. This is one you could play against an almost endless number of other people, hundreds if you wanted. You're just rolling the dice, checking off the time boxes, and using the color-coded dice and numbered dice to fill in spaces on your player sheet, which look sort of similar to the hex grid in Castles of Burgundy. There's zero interaction between players, and that's just fine in a medium-light resource management game of this length. Our longest game was about 20 minutes, and the few solo rounds I played were more like 15. My gut instinct here is that this little box was probably actually designed by Christophe Toussaint, the guy who did Octodice, which in and of itself, and this is parenthetical I realize, is sort of a dice version of the highly polarizing Feld programming game Aquasphere, which for the record I did not care for at all. Now I don't have any proof of this other than a general feeling. But Burgundy Dice doesn't really feel like a Feld dice game. It feels like a pen and paper dice game designed around the thematic structures of a Stefan Feld game, if that makes any sense. Now, I didn't love Octodice either, but I liked it a lot more than Aquasphere. Burgundy and Burgundy Dice 
aren't really two versions of the same game, so I don't think there's any reason to belabor a comparison of them to each other. Let's just talk about dice on its own. Every round, you roll the dice and pick a color and number combination. The colors respond to the areas on your sheet of hexes, farms, towns, oceans, mines, monasteries, and castles. The numbers you pick determine which hexes you can mark off. So some areas require a specific number, some require equal numbers, others require all different numbers or adjacent numbers or whatever. It has a bunch of bonuses you can store or use on your turn, and you get points for completing sections of the map or selling stored goods, etc. The thing I find engaging about Burgundy Dice is how light it is more than anything. It's not super crunchy, it's fairly luck-dependent, and it's not hard to remember the rules. You could easily play a solo round while eating a sandwich on your lunch break, or take it with you to a restaurant or bar. We've enjoyed playing it while chatting and eating trail mix or petting a cat. So it's pleasant, it's light, and mm, very importantly, it's cheap. Uh, about $16 new in the U.S., or somewhere between $5 and $8 plus shipping used. But it's visually pretty tough to take. The sheets are dark, like way too dark. The graphic design is super cluttered, and while I personally enjoy the original art in Castles of Burgundy, I realize this is a point of contention for a lot of people, keeping it visually similar on this smaller scale doesn't work. Like, at all. It, it's honestly pretty hard to see, even in bright light. Now, adding to this that you're provided with pencils, but very little white space on the player sheet, the pencils don't really show up that well. We use Sharpies if we play on the paper sheets, and a fine dry erase marker if we use laminated sheets. The player sheets are so dense with information that whatever a joy to play means, this is like the opposite of that. Fortunately, several very kind people have uploaded clean and bright homemade player sheets to BoardGameGeek. You can find them in the image gallery in the files section for the game. I think it will make playing Burgundy Dice much more enjoyable and save me some not insignificant eye strain. So, who should play Castles of Burgundy, the dice game? People who like easy Euro games, people who like pencil games, people who like a pocketable lunchtime game, and people who need a medium-light game for about 100 players. I give Burgundy Dice 4 out of 6 sides of those weirdly lightweight balsa wood dice that Robinsburger includes with everything. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost, and on Board Game Geek and Board Game Arena as Breakfast Core. Keep wearing a mask, keep keeping your distance, and if you're not vaccinated yet, get vaccinated as soon as you're able. The Five By is a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. You can find more episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify, and support the show on patreon.com slash fivebygames if you're feeling generous. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under the handle fivebygames, or you can simply go to fivebygames.com to find links to all of our social media, as well as all of our episodes, contributor bios, and the official podcast store. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.